Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good weekend, and hard to believe um, we are uh, just about ready to wrap up the uh, start of another week. But one thing I'm always glad to have the opportunity to do is uh, be on the air with you all, my fellow listeners, and be able to um, share with you all relevant information because you know, it's one thing to share information, and yes, you want that information to be relevant, but it's all got to um, flow together. In other words, it's got to um, have meaning. It has to have some kind of um, importance in going about telling the stories that have been shared uh, since June of 2020 on a host of different um, book topics that we've um, been discussing. Now, um, for this particular segment of November's Fury, the Deadly Great Lakes Hurricane of 1913 by Michael Schumacher, we're going to be discussing about um, some weather uh, meteorological terms. Uh, we're also going to be learning about um, the earliest uh, forms of um, weather forecasting when it came to uh, predicting uh, storms that could bring um, not just bring uncertainty, but storms that could unleash their fear in ways that had never been seen before. Now, one thing I can point out, and I'll, maybe I'll mention it again, is that um, in the early part of the 20th century, and of course we uh, learned this from the uh, previous uh, podcast, that uh, usually anything over 24 hours in terms of weather forecasting was just um, unheard of. You know, once you got your forecast for the next 24 hours, you were set to go. But anything over 24 hours was just deemed questionable. There could be a reason why. But on the other hand, maybe it would be better to explain that um, piece of information uh, towards the latter part of the podcast. But I also know that we're going to be learning about um, some ships. Because we have to remember that this... Um, hurricane of 1913 didn't impact just one ship it impacted several ships and after all it is fair to say that uh, we did learn in the introduction that eight ships alone uh, lost everything not just the ships themselves but their entire crewmen or crew people I should say um, all of those eight ships um, were, were lost on Lake Huron alone in one single day during that four-day span from November 7th to the 10th of 1913. So so we uh, do have a lot of ground to cover in this uh, podcast segment, but uh, the most important thing is that, uh, is that I have um, all the necessary information uh, ready to uh, share with you guys. So the most important thing we should do is go ahead and get our seatbelts fastened and be ready to go because... Um, the most important thing by being ready to go, it tells me that you all are uh, eager to learn more about what's about what lies in store. So our first uh, leadoff question for this uh, podcast segment of November's Fury, the Deadly Great Lakes Hurricane of 1913 by Michael Schumacher is the following. What is a low pressure system? You know, we hear in the news when it comes to the weather, these low-pressure systems, high-pressure systems. Well, so what is a low-pressure system? 
It is one that's uh, confined to places where the atmosphere is primarily thin, meaning that winds move inward towards the impacted areas. So in, in a nutshell, a low-pressure system, or systems for that matter, cause the air to rise. And if the air rises, what does that also contribute to, folks? Clouds. Precipitation. Precipitation, most notably like rain and snow. And maybe even fog. But of course, when we think of precipitation, we're more likely to think of rain and snow, but even fog itself is a form of precipitation. So, yes, low pressure systems cause the air to rise, which contributes to the uh, clouds and precipitation. So, would it be fair to say that low pressure areas or areas of low pressure result in the following? Do they result in storms, yes or no? The answer is yes. Low-pressure systems result in uh, storms. You know, we should keep in mind that just because when a weather reporter or weather reporters, for that matter, say that, well, it's going to rain here today, they might be right. But in order for it to rain, for example, does don't you need to have a... Um, a weather system that brings about the rain. I mean, we don't have magic wands that say, okay, we need rain, so just rain. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. So many of you are probably wondering, how did this low-pressure system evolve that uh, will go about creating such havoc along the Great Lakes that has never been seen before? Well, the early days of November 1913, saw a low-pressure system evolve right around Alaska's Aleutian Islands. And Aleutian, folks, is spelled A-L-E-U-T-I-A-N. So, okay, we know that in the early days of November 1913, a low-pressure system has evolved around, uh, right around Alaska's Aleutian Islands, where it will then move on down south into Canada, bringing sharp, cold arctic air okay so once it's into canada bringing this sharp cold arctic air the uh pressure the low pressure system now finally sets into the pacific northwest okay when i think of the pacific northwest what states come to my mind uh the states that come to my mind in the pacific northwest are washington state and oregon so this low-pressure system goes, in, goes between the Canada and U.S. Uh, border. So, in other words, it's not confined to just the United States. It's not confined solely to Canada. It's smack dab um, between Canada and U.S. along the borderline. This low-pressure system, folks, is so intense that it produced heavy snow, resulting in strong winds coming from the southwest and temperatures falling into single-digit ranges. And here at the start of November, it's been unseasonably warm along the Great Lakes. So we have to keep in mind that just because it's warm in one region, it may not mean that it'll stay warm forever. But if the low-pressure system itself evolves just right, then just about anything can happen. 
especially in the month of November along the Great Lakes waters when the skies of November turn gloomy. They may not be gloomy for 30 days, given that that's the number of days in November, but the skies of November can turn very gloomy in a short um, amount of time. So that's what makes uh, one of the, that's one of many many uh, factors behind what makes gr the the waters along the Great Lakes so unpredictable. Now, can weather conditions on the Great Lakes be unpredictable come latter end of a shipping season? You know, it's interesting. I just mentioned a few seconds ago about the unpredictability of um, the Great Lakes in the month of November. So if there is un a state of unpredictability in general with the Great Lakes, most notably in November, does it also pertain to uh, the shipping season, most notably uh, come the latter end of when a shipping season is about to end? Yes. Storms themselves were known to be forecasted by weather reporters only to not develop. Okay, so... Might, it might be fair to say that 50% of the time uh, the weather reporters got the storms right. The other 50% of the time it just didn't evolve. But if the storms arose, they came so suddenly where ships out on the waters could not find high ground. In other words, they couldn't find shelter. So, you know, if these storms come out of nowhere and you're on one of these vessels... You really are stuck between a rock and a hard place because it's not like you can just, um, it's not an interstate, folks, when you're out on the Great Lakes waters. You know, you can't just pull over to a shoreline and say, this is where I'm going to dock um, for the next uh, five, seven hours until it's safe to um, venture back out. It's not like a car where I can, you know, maybe pull over to the shoulder of a road and just, um, let the um, rainstorm um, do its thing because sometimes cars will pull over to a shoulder of a road rather than risk driving only to um, cause a chain um, accident, especially when it's raining like cats and dogs. So we have to keep in mind that ships along the Great Lakes waters don't always have the luxury of dropping anchor and, um, and just saying, hey, I'm going to stay, we're going to uh, dock here until things subside. Now, um, now we're going to uh, find out about um, some unique people here, uh, people that most of us probably don't even know anything about, but that's okay because even I myself didn't know anything about um, the people whom we're going to be discussing about in this podcast, but the, the person we're going to talk about here is, um, he's a weather reporter. Now, he's not just a weather reporter. But he's got a unique title as a weather reporter. So, for starters, uh, who is William Alexander? He just so happens to be the head chief weather observer out of Cleveland, Ohio. And if I'm not mistaken, isn't Cleveland, Ohio a huge hub for Great Lakes shipping? Does anybody know which of the five Great Lakes is uh, lies on uh, Cleveland, Ohio, or lies right on the confines of uh, Cleveland? Is it Lake Ontario? Is it Lake uh, Lake uh, Huron or Lake Erie? The answer is uh, choice uh, C, Lake Erie. So, uh, 
Cleveland of Ohio is, um, so this is where uh, William Alexander um, is a weather observer out of uh, being Cleveland, Ohio. And since 1898, uh, he has been with the uh, U.S. Weather Bureau. You know, whenever I think of the year 1898, I think of that being the year that the that the United States declared war on Spain and entered what became known as the Spanish-American War. In 1898, um, the U.S. battleship, the USS Maine, blew up in Havana Harbor in uh, Havana, Cuba. Not to get off track, but this is important to be uh, reminded of why 1898 is so significant. Um, the biggest enemy in the world at that time is Spain. And so for a number of years, after 1898, many were led to believe that the reason why we declared war on Spain was because um, when this ship, the USS Maine, blew up in Havana Harbor, people were looking for someone to blame, and they were looking to blame uh, Spain, given that uh, the Spanish still had um, a huge uh, presence in uh, Cuba. So the United States pretty much uh, declared war on Spain as a result of the uh, incident in uh, Havana Harbor. But long story short, um, it wasn't so much that we declared war on Spain and we fought them in the Spanish-American War, but it wasn't until 1898 that the United States finally emerged as a first world power. Or not, maybe not just a first world power, but as a world superpower. So we have to keep in mind, folks, that uh, for about 111 years, ever since the, from the time when uh, the Constitution was first signed and when the first uh, Congress um, went, in, went into um, effect around the time that George Washington became president in 1789, the, the United States had started out probably as a third world country, then worked its way up to being second uh, tier country status, but it wasn't until 1898 that we finally became a world superpower. And what do you know? At the same time, in 1898, William Alexander joined the Weather Bureau. So just a little piece of a unique history to be uh, reminded of. So whenever you think of 1898, think of that as being the year that the United States uh, became uh, a world uh, superpower. So prior upon coming to Cleveland, Ohio, uh, William Alexander was the head weather observer in various other uh, places like Taylor, Texas, Burlington, Vermont, and Baltimore, Maryland. He took his job very, very seriously. He saw his job post as a science. Well, whenever we study science, folks, what is, what is science? Are we doing work when we're learning about science? Yes. Are we studying about how things evolve uh, from an evolutionary standpoint? Sure. Are we learning about... Basically, we're, we're studying various things when it comes to science. We're learning about it. So, for William Alexander, his job post was about science itself, studying science and seeing it as actual work, actual work of study. That to him was far more important versus recording data.
Sure, it's important to uh, record the weather temperatures, but that's really not true science, according to William Alexander. He was a firm believer in weather observation. In other words, he firmly believed that, um, that, that uh, for one, Mother Nature had a mind of her own, but he also firmly believed that, um, that things happen for a reason. In other words, if, if there is a storm that uh, comes about that's not your traditional one-to-two-day one storm, if it goes past two days, there's a reason for why it happens. Cleveland, Ohio, um, as I mentioned earlier, was home to, uh, has a big presence along the Great Lakes, most notably uh, being Lake Erie. But Cleveland, Ohio is home to a large number of companies whom owned commercial shipping vessels. The shipping officials, and this will be mentioned more than one, folks, more than once, folks, and so I'm going to mention it to you, though, right now so you have some kind of indication of where I'm coming from. Shipping officials are not big on listening to warnings from the Weather Bureau reporters. Gee, I wonder why. Could it be that perhaps the shipping um, officials prefer to make ends meet over personal safety? Yes. So that means that shipping officials at times can be so desperate that if their situation is dire where they're in the red and, and uh, signs for a surplus aren't good, they're going to send their captain, the captain and the crew of a boat, out into the water and make sure that the goods are delivered to the final destination, even if it means putting that crew in harm's way. Sure, the captain may be a veteran of, 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 of the waters, and yes, he may have dealt with his share of uh, unpredictable weather and made it through uh, X number of times from past occasions, but let's just keep in mind there's always going to be that one time where a captain and his crew may not come home alive because all in the name of being forced against their own will to deliver one more run before the season's end. And if the captain and his crew didn't abide by what the uh, shipping officials told them to, their replacements were just, um, their replacements were pretty much imminent. In other words, okay, you don't want to do as you're told. We'll, we'll hire another captain and crew to fill your um, positions, and they will be our uh, permanent slots uh, going forward um, for future purposes. So it's one of those situations where I'll mention it now, and I'll definitely be mentioning it again somewhere down the road, where captains and their crew don't always get to choose what's best for them. More often than not, sometimes they are forced to, they have, were forced against their own will to follow orders from, um, from uh, company officials above. But one of the biggest fears for the shipping officials was lost income. As I said earlier, if, um, if shipping, if uh, shipping officials have seen uh, declines in revenue, they can't afford to take any more hits for their shipping season. So, if it means sending a crew out into weather that's um, out into weather that's uh, chaotic, then that's what they'll do just to ensure that um, they can actually get some form of uh, positive net gain. Now, uh, which of the five Great Lakes is the largest and the deepest? I'll give you a couple of choices. Is it uh, Lake Michigan, 
Lake Superior or Lake Huron? The answer is choice B, Lake Superior. And believe it or not, folks, Lake Superior holds more water than the other four lakes. So if you took um, Ontario, Erie, Huron, and Michigan, you could fit all of the water from those lakes into Lake Superior. To me, that's um, pretty doggone impressive. Now, um, prior to uh, European arrival into um, North America, or what we now know as the United States, the, um, the Chippewa uh, that lived along the, uh, conf the confines of Lake Superior, and of course Lake Superior, given that it's a you know, big lake, it uh, borders um, not just Michigan in terms of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, but it stretches into Wisconsin and Minnesota, but the uh, Chippewa referred to Lake Superior as Gitchagumi, meaning the big lake. Well, that would make sense. I mean, if there's a reason why it's called the big lake, because, you know, Gitchagumi, a.k.a. Lake Superior, being the deepest, it's going to hold um, more water. And not just hold more water, but it's going to be so deep that... Um, that for those of you who are familiar with Gordon Lightfoot's song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, uh, Gordon Lightfoot made reference to the fact that um, Superior never gives up her dead. So given that Superior is one of the, um, one of the largest and the deepest of the five great lakes, that should tell us right there that Superior never gives up her dead, even when the skies of November turn gloomy. Now, um, who are uh, William H. Wright and Stephen A. Lyons? Now, I don't expect you all to know who these people are, but I think they are important to mention because they will be mentioned off and on in other uh, podcast segments. Well, let me ask you this. Are both men um, captains? Yes, they are. They are uh, ship captains. Um, William Wright uh, commanded the James uh, Carruthers, or Carruthers, rather, I should say, which was a 529-foot-long uh, freighter uh, from Canada. It, at the time, this was uh, one of the newest and longest uh, ships along the Great Lakes. Stephen Lyons commanded the J.H. Sheedal. Both ships hauled agrarian products, being uh, wheat and grain. Now, uh, both captains are aware of the Arctic uh, cold front making its way, but each one knew his vessel could handle what lied in store weather-wise based upon past circumstances. You know, that's placing a lot of confidence in your ships, or rather in your ship. But is it fair to say that if you place too much confidence in your ship that they're could be potential repercussions down the road. Um, to me, I think it is possible. But at the same time, if a captain is smart enough to make um, some um, decisions that are quick and he has time on his side, even when he's out on the water, if he decides to make a change there is a possibility that he and his crew can be spared from the worst. We might find out something here shortly. Now, both ships did depart from Fort William, Ontario, Canada on the evening of November 6th at different hours. 
Their intentions were to meet again in the in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan at the Sioux Locks. Uh, the Sioux Locks will be mentioned um, at some other point uh, down the road in another podcast. So for those of you who are curious to know uh, where Sioux St. Marie is located in Michigan, um, I can tell you this much. It's not located um, north of Detroit. It is located in uh, Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And the Sioux Locks are basically uh, a station, not just any ordinary station, but it's a station for where ships uh, come in and out of of the facilities, and they are navigated by a series... They are, um, they move through a series of locks that will uh, guide them into um, a dock spot, and these locks um, are raised. Locks, remember, folks, are, um, are what raise and lower um, ships uh, going from uh, one level to another. Of course, when I think of locks, I think of uh, like the Erie Canal. So um, these uh, Great Lake freighters have um, locks that they uh, go through. So they're going through different uh, levels when they are coming into a harbor and leaving a harbor en route to their uh, destination. It should be worth pointing out that on the evening of November 6th, there were many other people. We could say that these people are bystanders. We could say that they are just ordinary, everyday people whom are... um, whom live probably right along the waters or who have jobs that pertain to the greater shipping industry, but really just many other people in general, along with uh, boat crewmen from other um, ships that have not, um, that that are either in the process of um, making their way out onto the waters, uh, a whole host of people, let's just put it this way, on the evening of November 6th, are beginning to see firsthand um, early signs of a storm. Of course, little do they know that this is going to be a storm that they've never uh, encountered before. The winds are coming from the north and were so strong that seas began forming. Now, I know many of you are thinking to yourselves, okay, we've got strong winds and these winds are so strong that seas begin forming. Uh, what do we mean by seas beginning to form? In other words, well, yes, you've got winds that are strong enough, and if the if the conditions are just right, and the pressure, and what do you call it, the the atmosphere, all the ingredients are right, the seas are going to have enough um, force that um, when it's just right. The seas themselves can produce waves that are um, destructive. So that's what it means by, um, by um, what do you call it, um, winds, what do you call it, wind, not just the presence of winds, but the, um, the prevalence of these winds and, um, and the speed that they're moving at, that it's so strong that seas are forming. In other words, uh, waves are um, coming together, uh, white caps are, um, are present, all the right ingredients are coming together. So people, bystanders, uh, boat crewmen, they're seeing firsthand that this isn't uh, good. This alone, to many of them, is enough to urge caution. You know, caution being kind of like the, 
first level of warning. Okay, we need to um, we need to take into consideration that something's something's not right here. That something's going to happen, and if we're not careful, we might end up um, we could be um, in the path of a storm that we might not um, escape. Now, what kind of warnings were officially listed throughout all of um, Lake Superior's ports on Friday morning, November 7th? What kind of warnings do you think um, are going to be issued, folks? It does pertain to weather. We, at least we would hope that. Well, the answer is the following. Heavy or what uh, would be referred to as severe gale warnings. Now, of course, whenever most of us think of Gale, we tend to think of that as being um, a woman's name. But believe it or not, uh, in weather, meteorology, there is a term referred to as a gale. So what exactly is a gale? A gale itself, that's spelled G-A-L-E, uh, so a gale itself refers to strong wind, or rather I should say strong winds, ranging anywhere from 32 to 63 miles per hour. So think about this, folks. If you're on one of the Great Lakes and a gale warning has been issued, just, um, or, or a, well, yes, you could say a gale warning has been issued, but, um, but if the winds are that of gale force and they are obviously strong winds, you know that it's going to be in that range from 32 to 63 miles an hour. I can't imagine if it gets up to 60 miles per hour what that might do to you. It could um, knock your hat off and to the point where you wouldn't be able to go retrieve your hat. It would probably be out in the middle of the water. Um, for all we know, um, objects would be uh, picked up and um, thrown miles away. Now, as for gale warnings, they pertain to consistent surface winds within the confines of 39 to 54 miles per hour range, constant wind gusts. So, remember folks, a gale refers to the strong winds, whereas the gale warnings pertain to consistent surface winds. Consistent, folks, meaning that it's happening frequently it's not it's not letting up uh, it's just it's constantly going now I found this interesting and this is something to be uh, that I should mention with wind speed forces around western Minnesota led to choppy waves and the barometric pressure rapidly falling leading to the weather bureau issuing a gale warning so I'm sure many of you all are wondering, how did the Weather Bureau decide to issue a gale warning? Well, yes, um, the, the, yes, surface winds were at 39 to 54 miles per hour. That's one thing. But to have choppy waves and a barometric pressure um, rapidly falling, that is enough. So we've got to give the Weather Bureau some credit here for um, taking the first step and saying, hey, we need to get these warnings out and hopefully a majority of ship captains will take them seriously. But what I wonder too is, okay, you know, we don't have televisions in 1913. Sure. We, we do have some form of radio communication, 
the bigger question might be is do does every ship have their radio on when this um when this uh weather uh report gets um put into effect or on the other hand could it be that some uh ships have already left um harbor to go out onto the water before this um before the Weather Bureau issued a gale warning. I mean, there's a lot of other unknown factors we may not know about just at this moment, but it is possible we could uh, figure out um, some other clues as we go further on in the podcast. Now, what instrument do you all think was used along Great Lakes ports for issuing gale warnings? What do you all think might have been used? Was it... um, was it something that could be uh, visible? Maybe that's one uh, an easier way of describing it. Could it have been something that was visible uh, to people in general? Uh, the answer is yes. It was an eight foot by eight foot red flag that included a black square in the center. And this flag was hung on a pole in every port. Okay, so that should give an indication right there that, um, that anytime you have an eight by eight, um, foot um, flag, red flag, with with a black square in the center. That that means that there is um, there's an imminent sign of um, not of extreme danger, but imminent sign that there is a gale warning and that it should not be taken lightly. A second flag um, flew side by side with the eight by eight foot red flag. Does anybody know what second flag that would have been? It was a pennant. Now, of course, I know when we think of pennants, we tend to think of baseball. We tend to think of these, you know, little merchandise flags with your favorite team and all and all that. But that's not um, how it was uh, back then. So the second flag being a pennant was used to help to determine wind direction. Now, I'm sure many of you all are wondering, okay, all that's great during the daytime, but what could have been done at nighttime to have helped um, ships who were um, still out on the waters? Because, believe it or not, folks, there are ships navigating the waters. They've got to know what to um, be on the lookout for, and, you know, the the Weather Bureau's got to help those ships. Well, what do you think would have been used at nighttime? How about lanterns? So, come nighttime, warnings were indicated by lanterns. So, how could one determine if if a gale warning was imminent uh, during nighttime? A red light. So, a red light represented gale warning, whereas a white light determined wind direction. You know, this may not be the most sophisticated or advanced of technology in 1913, but the way I uh, see it, based upon when I read this book, I got to give the Weather Bureau credit. I mean, at least they're doing something, and, and doing this is better than nothing. I mean, we don't have a, a 24-hour National Weather Service, but at the same time, the Weather Bureau is doing everything it can to stay on top of this uh, storm. So I think it's great at nighttime you have a red light representing a gale warning, the white light determining wind direction. So yes, the presence of lanterns are significant. 
And yes, during the daytime to have a pennant and an eight by eight foot um, red flag uh, stationed at every uh, port along the Great Lakes waters. It's, it may not be the grandest of uh, technological uh, warnings uh, for devices, but to me, it's uh, better than not having anything. Now, in the early 20th century, was projecting storm intensity a challenge? Yes. Considering the number one factor in determining a captain's decision to sail rested upon what, folks? What do you think was the number one factor in determine in in helping a captain determine uh, whether or not it was uh, good to be out on the water sailing? How about wind velocity? So when we think of velocity, we think of speed, how quickly something's moving. So wind velocity uh, is an, another good way of uh, describing wind velocity is uh, wind speed that in this case, Wind speed ca caused by air moving from high to low pressure due to changes in temperature. So that's pretty much, in a sense, how wind velocity um, was relied upon. And, you know, maybe today we could still um, depend upon that factor. Of course, the technology is far more significant now than it was 109 years ago in terms of weather forecasting. But... Uh, wind velocity was based upon uh, wind speed um, caused by air moving from high to low pressure due to changes in temperature. So basically the change in temperature had a lot to do with whether or not captains felt comfortable move, um, setting sail along uh, the waters. Uh, another uh, unique uh, piece of uh, meteorological uh, technology of the time in 1913 and it might still be in use today. Uh, true or false, were small craft warnings issued to recreational boats? Okay, when we think of recreational boats, folks, what do we think of? You know, um, going out on a joyride, you know, just uh, having leisure time, you know. We're not um, having to do uh, someone else's uh, work. So the answer is true. Small craft warnings were given to recreational boats. As for uh, the commercial vessels, uh, storm and gale warnings were issued um, for those boats. Now, um, who is John Duddleson? I don't expect any of you all to know John, who John Duddleson is, but I will tell you this much. We will learn more about him in the next podcast. He was captain of, of the L.C. Waldo, a 472-foot or boat belonging to Bay Transportation Company. The L.C. Waldo was bound for Cleveland, Ohio. It had a long trip ahead. Captain Duddleson made the decision in the early morning of November 7th to venture out along Lake Superior's waters. Do you think that, do any of you all think Captain Duddleson uh, received a... Um, received a gale warning ahead of time, or did the gale warning come after he had already um, ventured out along Lake Superior's waters? The answer is choice B. Captain Duddleson had already um, departed um, onto Lake Superior's waters prior to the Weather Bureau issuing the gale warning. we got to wonder now, will Captain Duddleson survive this storm? But then again, 
we have to pray to God and hope that the majority of the captains and their crew that will be out on uh, the waters of the Great Lakes are going to survive. I mean, we already know based upon our introduction that um, eight ships lost everything, not just the ships themselves, um, but their their entire crew. So we have to keep in mind that um, that there are going to be those whom will survive and perform brave acts of heroism. There are going to be uh, those um, captains and their crew whom won't survive, which is a, a travesty. But um, but yes, uh, this, as I said from the previous podcast, being the intro, being the introduction, that what we're learning about really is, in a sense, a story of of uh, survival and tragedy. But we do have to certainly hope that um, Captain John Duddleson of the L.C. Waldo will be one of those who uh, will survive, not just uh, Captain Duddleson himself, but also for his crew. Now, uh, the J.H. Sheedle, uh, which I mentioned earlier, that was captained by Stephen Lyons, there is some good news to report. Um, although his um, ship didn't last very long on the water due to uh, winds whipping up heavy seas, he decided not to go out any further. He decided to uh, drop anchor and um, wait out the storm until it was finally safe to uh, go further out. This would be one, the first of many good decisions made by Captain Lyons. Okay, so we can breathe a sigh of, rel of relief here and realize that, hey, we do have some captains out there whom are using good judgment, whom are not uh, playing with fire and are respecting Mother Nature. In other words, they know that, yes, Mother Nature... Um, will throw curveballs, but at the same time, they also, but at the same time, men like Captain um, Sheetle know that uh, at the same time that Mother Nature can do far more than what people will give her credit for doing. Did most people residing along Great Lakes waters feel as though they were totally immune from what's referred to as rogue or killer waves? Any... Do most people, what do you all think, folks? Do you all think most people residing along Great Lakes waters felt as though they were totally immune from uh, killer waves? Believe it or not, uh, most everyday people did. However, sailors knew the exact opposite. Because for many of sailors, they had um, encountered these um, rogue waves. Rogue being giant, monster waves. We're talking like 30, 40, and even 50-foot waves, folks. We're not talking about waves. You know, when we think of these size waves, we think of the, the type of waves that surfboarders, surfers like to do for surfing purposes. But believe me, folks, uh, sailors don't have this luxury. These waves, being these uh, killer waves, can be so um, catastrophic that it can result in the loss of... Um, loss of life, significant damage to vessels, uh, they, can, um, they can wreak all kinds of havoc on um, ships and those who uh, navigate uh, the Great Lakes waters. So, yes, the sailors knew the exact opposite versus what everyday uh, people um, may have presumed. 
but a lot also stemmed from the fact that um, you had to take a lake's size and depth, which often would determine a storm's severity. So for Lake Superior being the largest and the deepest of the Great Lakes, I think it would be fair to say that uh, any time a storm occurred on Lake Superior, that it could be pretty bad if the um, if the weather conditions were just so right to where it did result in something ever so um, catastrophic. Now, you know, waves have height, waves have length, because after all, there is a term called wavelength. So how could a wave's height be determined, folks? It was determined by wind. I'm sure many of you all probably didn't know that. But believe it or not, a wave's height was determined by wind, including distance that uh, for which a wave could travel without coming apart. You know, more often than not, when we go to the beach, we see waves come, and then we see waves break apart. But if a wave is traveling a long distance without coming apart, should that tell us right there that there is some form of imminent danger uh, that is um, not far away? Yes, it should tell us. Strong winds from the north could push seas without reduction, most notably on Superior, Michigan, and Huron. Well, what does that tell us right there about strong winds from the north pushing seas without uh, reduction on those three lakes? What that means, folks, is that gigantic waves lied on the southern ends of these lakes. So you get the winds from the north that are pushing, that can push the seas without any reduction. And then you've got these gigantic waves on the opposite end. They don't have to come from the utmost extreme southern end, but they are south of where the winds are coming to where when the conditions are right, both will meet up with one another and then um, follow whatever path they are going on and uh, ultimately take out what is in front of them or what is in their vicinity. Well, to me, what that means in front of them is uh, not just a ship, but um, a but a, a group of ships. So we uh, there again. It's another good example of not messing around with uh, the elements, or I should say, the forces of Mother Nature. What did veterans of Great Lake storms mean when they referred to what was known as three sisters? This is a, a good one, folks. Uh, what do you think that um, veterans of Great Lakes uh, storms uh, meant when they referred to what was known as Three Sisters? How about the formation or gathering of three waves? Each individual wave following the other ever so closely, resulting in an enormous final punch. The first wave that evolved was larger than average, larger than the average wave that would have um, that one might have encountered um, seeing along Great Lakes waters. This first wave, larger than the average, meaning it would have been one and a half times the height of an average wave in any general storm. The second wave was close was closely following the first, and it was bigger than its predecessor. The third wave, being the granddaddy of them all, 
was huge. It was a giant. The height, it pretty much was the equivalent to the height of the first two wave, the first two waves combined total. So when this third wave comes about, this is the one that can pretty much uh, destroy. Not that the first or second wave could uh, impact the ship, but if the first or the second wave didn't do any kind of damage, the third wave could be the one that could do it all, being the granddaddy of them all. Three sisters waves could do such things, listen to this folks, that could do such things as tearing apart a boat's structures and cabins built above the hull, and the hull being the main body of the boat. The, the Three Sisters waves could tear off hatch covers, being the flat sheets designed to keep water from entering the cargo hold. Basically, these waves alone uh, were known to uh, shift cargo, where straight deckers' midsections became uneven. Um, these waves could pop rivets in a ship's hull. And if two waves got under a boat at the same time, the boat itself could bulge in the middle, in the middle, meaning split decks, splintering of wooden hulls to steel boats breaking in two. I tell you, these waves cannot be taken uh, lightly. They cannot be taken for granted. Mother Nature can't be taken for granted. If the weather isn't right and you're out on the water, be prepared to deal with a th with the th with what's called the three sisters waves. How long did an average storm last out along Great Lakes waters, folks? One to two days tops. Experienced captains were comfortable in going out into the waters in the midst of November storms, contending with elements of wind, rain, and snow. And more often than not, they would arrive into port with boat or with boats covered in ice. But November of 1913 would be far different than anything before. What was unique about the 287-foot uh, wooden hold boat known as Louisiana? Did you hear what I mentioned, uh, folks, about a wooden hold boat? Well, for one, in, by 1913, this boat had become the last of its kind to operate on the Great Lakes waters. I don't know of any boat um, in the early 20th century that is um, still operating, knowing that it's constructed from wood. Didn't uh, steel replace wood before 19th century ended? Yes. The Louisiana was built around 1887, just about 11 years before the United States became a world superpower, and it was around that time in 1887 when mining ore in Minnesota began to evolve. Uh, the area that uh, that uh, saw, um, or the region rather, I should say, that uh, saw Minnesota become um, profitable with uh, ore mining was... Um, the Iron Range uh, country, which is in the northern end of the state, it, most notably in such places as um, Hibbing and Evelith, Minnesota. Now, November of 1913, sadly, um, the Louisiana ran aground. She touched shallow waters, and she caught on fire. Fortunately, her entire crew survived, 
But what makes this um, unique, or this uh, situation tragic, I should say, was that the um, was at the wreck of the uh, Louisiana, even though she um, ran aground. As unfortunate as it was that she caught on fire, um, the Louisiana became the, the storm's first casualty. But how ironic that it became a casualty, but it did not uh, result in, the, um, in, in any of her uh, crewmen uh, passing. So you have to wonder, what if the Louisiana uh, had been replaced and built, um, a new Louisiana had been built with steel? Would she have survived? We don't know. Uh, it's a good question. Uh, but it is fair to say that just because a boat is uh, built out of steel or is a straight decker, it doesn't mean, automatically mean that they'll survive. It just so happened that uh, the Louisiana was one of it was was a rare breed, still um, operating um, smoothly, still had what appeared to be some prime uh, left in her uh, life, but uh, sadly, uh, Mother Nature um, had other uh, plans in store. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast segment, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to learn some more about uh, Captain uh, Doddleson, and we're also going to learn some stuff about other ships that um, that are either caught in the crossfire or um, have to make uh, decisions, uh, what we call spur-of-the-moment decisions, that will either... Um, that will either determine um, their what their overall fate will be or whether or not those ships might live to see another day. In other words, will they still survive um, the storm that's in front of them or uh, will they just not uh, simply make it at all? Uh, but we will also learn uh, some other uh, meteorological terms as well. Uh, but I'm sure that as we progress along with this uh, podcast series, that we will also be learning other valuable uh, meteorological information. Well, thank you for your time. As always, I look forward to being back on the air again. And thank you uh, once again. I've said it many of times before, and I'll just say it again. Thank you for being such ardent listeners. Without you guys, I don't know where I would be. So uh, you guys are what make my uh, podcasting all the more worth the while. So thank you again, and wherever you all may reside, uh, continue to stay safe. Take care.